Let's dive into what we're gonna be talking about today. I wanna start out today by a quote from the author of the first chapter book I ever read. And no, I'm not talking about R.L. Stein. I'm talking about Mark Twain. Mark Twain said this. I wanna show it to you guys in typical Southerner fashion. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Amen is right, all right? And today, we're gonna dive into specifically one of those kind of passages. One of the ones that's not really hard to understand, but one of those ones that is actually somewhat bothersome to us if we actually read it and take it at face value. So if you got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter seven. That's where we're gonna be going down to Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. That's gonna be where we start today. I'm gonna read through this section here. We're gonna pray. I'm gonna see what God has for us today. These are the words of Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Let's pray. Jesus, these words are brutally honest and definitely truthful. And so today I know I, I, I talk to maybe a, a crowd full of people who fall into potentially two categories of comfortably saved or hopelessly lost. And I pray that the, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Jesus, you would, you would show us where we stand with you. That you would show us, Jesus, not if we know you, but if you know us. That we wouldn't just think because of um, a resume that we have that outlines all the religious things that we've done, that we're good to go. But we would take this morning, God, as a time to uh, put a crossroads in front of our faith and to determine yet again which path we are on. Remind us, Jesus, that in a moment like this, that neutral is not an option. That you invite us, Jesus, to not stand on uh, what we've done or who, who we've uh, confessed to believe in, but you remind us to look at our faith, to look at our lives, to see surrender. And, and, and Jesus, I come to you, God, um, trembling in fear of this word. It's, an, it's, it's not one that's easy to process out. And so I ask that uh, not a word would be spoken from my mouth that wouldn't come from divine inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that you would, that you would speak in and through me, God, in a way that, that illuminates your word so that people can see the truth. And I pray for us. Because if you do that, Jesus, then we will be held accountable to that truth. For me as a teacher, and for us today as hearers. And so we come to you, God, not fearful, uh, afraid of what may happen if we get things wrong, but faithful, God, that you will show us where we're at. 
believing and trusting, God, that you will illuminate to us what we need to see to make the changes that we need to make in our own lives and here in the city. In your name, amen. So let's dive into this. Uh, if you got a Bible, again, we're going to kind of do what we do. We're going to walk through this word by word, verse by verse. Again, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. He is preaching his most famous sermon ever. He has come kind of down to the home stretch here. And where you would normally think uh, that a pastor would do what he's doing, he, he is. He's, he's saying, okay, now that you've heard all of this, now that you've leaned into these, these heavy principles of the kingdom of God that I'm bringing here to initiate, here is what you need to do. Here, here, here is the, the reality that there are two paths that you can go into. And he's already got through talking about that there are uh, two of a lot of things. There's a true one and a false one. He's saying there's a, a true path and it's, it's narrow and only a few people find it. And there's a really wide false path and it is broad and a lot of people are gonna find that. And on those two paths are two different crowds. There's one that embraced the hard but incredibly rewarding life that is life on the narrow road. And there's others who choose to check what baggage that they want to check and that they feel comfortable checking and enjoy life on the broad path. And then from there, last week, we talked about how um, along these paths and kind of standing at the front of these paths are true prophets and false prophets, both saying that this way leads to heaven, proclaiming it boldly, even giving very good reasons why this path is the right path. But in the end, one will be shown to be a prophet who made you comfortable allowed you to sit with what you had, to stay where you were, and to grow lukewarm. And now Jesus, he expands it from talking about false prophets and, and their judgment and how you can recognize them and that trees that don't bear fruit are gonna be thrown into this fire. And he expands it from a conversation around false prophets and he begins to go, okay, now this here is for everyone. And he says this in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So let's start. Let's, let's just go uh, kind of face value here. He says, not everyone. Again, he's including everyone. Now the conversation is not about false prophets. It is about literally everyone. And not just people who are Christians, not people who just can't claim to be Christians, literally every person who has ever lived on earth, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So here's what I believe he's saying. And as simple as I can put it, because again, um, we could go to great lengths to overcomplicate this passage, but I don't want to do that today. I believe what he's saying very clearly in this passage is that lip service is not what he's after. I, I believe very clearly to, and, and bluntly, he is saying talk is cheap. I'm not after you giving lip service to who I am. I'm after you living a lifestyle that truly displays who I am. Because you can say, Lord, Lord, all you want to, and when you do that, what actually is going on is when I just say, Lord, Lord, what actually is happening is I have more in common with demons than I do true faith. Here's what I mean by that. In the book of James, uh, Jesus' brother uh, wrote a book of the Bible. He believed Jesus was Lord. And again, I've said this many times, I don't know what your brother would have to do for you to believe that he was a savior, but it would probably resurrect from the dead. And um, that gives great evidence that Jesus actually did. So in James 2.9, he says this. He's talking about faith and works. He's talking about actually not just saying things out loud, but actually living them with our life. And he says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. We get evidence of that even in the gospels where we see Jesus um, showing up on the scene to cast demons out of people. And they say things like, what do you have to do with the son of God? Are you coming to torture us before the time is now? So it gives us clear evidence that, that, that even the demons believe 
and confess. He is Lord. And they will even say, hey, we don't just know that you are the son of God. We also know that at the end of the day, our final judgment is gonna come and then you are gonna be the one who slams the gavel down on that judgment and fully banishes us to where we go. So what I want you to do before we really um, begin to look through this and unpack through this, what, what I want you to do is, is kind of have one of these moments where we really realize what is at stake. Where we really realize not just what is at stake here in this true way, in this false way, but truly understand what is going on in the time, energy, and effort that is being disposed into your life by the enemy to try to get you to find yourself on the wrong path. See, we have an actual real enemy. The Bible calls him Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, all sorts of different things. But we have a true enemy. He's doing everything he can to get you to not be able to enter into that kingdom of heaven. And if you know a little bit of the history and the story of, of the enemy, what you know is that his origin story, he, he was a fallen angel. He was an angel named Lucifer, uh, who, who apparently um, in the rankings of angel was, was very high, was looked at as one of the most beautiful ones, uh, was, was looked at as, as like, you know, the angel. And in his pride, that's, that's his golden sin. In his pride, he thought that if there was anybody in heaven who should be worshiped more, it should be me. And in his pride, he led a rebellion. And he led one third of the angels of heaven to rebel against the holy God. And again, when you rebel against the holy God, when you, when you rebel against the great I am, things don't go well for you. And again, this is our origin story of good and evil. Satan and his legion of demonic now angels that he leads to rebel, that one third of angels, he then banishes them out of the heavenly realm, the realm of kingdom. Now, my question to you is this. If Satan can talk angels out of heaven, don't you, don't you just maybe think that he is actually capable of talking you into hell? by getting you to believe that you're going to heaven? Like, I'm again, imagine. He's this angel, and he comes to one-third of the whole rest of the angels, and he probably made his appeal to more of them, but he comes to all of them. He says, you know what great idea I have, guys? Let's lead a rebellion. And again, all these angels, they're an intimate knowledge, perfect union, they're with God. They see Jesus face to face. Again, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God are all in heaven at one day, existed from the very beginning of time. And somehow, this incredibly evil figure, see, like you've never experienced heaven. You don't know what it's like there. But if he is crafty enough to talk angels out of heaven, maybe, just maybe, he's able of talking us into some things too. And see, that's his deal. His deal is talk. The Bible talks about him and it says that his native language is lies. That, that anytime he's speaking, it is deception. When we first see him slither onto the scene in Genesis, we see that he is coming, asking a question to Eve, going, did God really say that? Now, he already knew what God really had said. He's trying to get them to believe a lie about who God is and who they are and, and what God wants to do because of that. See, his native tongue is lies. And his native mission is to get you to falsely believe that you are secure. See, he didn't come in and go, God didn't say that. He got you to question what God did say. See, when all we've surrendered to God, his lip service, then our faith has more in common with that liar Satan 
than it does our Lord and Savior. See, because what he's after is words. What he's after is getting us to believe that our words are enough, that our acknowledgement is enough. Now, before you go to this far other side of the pendulum, and again, some people do this and some people would, would go to the other way. Before you hear me saying and say, okay, well, Trent, you're just talking about why I have to do things to believe. And I'm saved not by my faith, but by works. Pause for a second. Here's what I mean. And we've explained this before. I've brought bicycles on the stage to explain this before. Uh, Royce, the guy who's up there running cameras, was my bicycle man uh, that day. And maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. But here's what I want you to understand is that somewhere in our uh, American Christian Incorporated, we separated what the Bible clearly puts as faith as two things, two parallel tracks running in the same direction. When the Bible says this is the track of faith, it is belief and action. It's never just this mental ascent to go, you are Lord, Lord. The end is belief and action, is belief and action. And and my action shows that I believe and my faith leads to action. The best clear example that I can give to you this is the apostle Peter. So if you know a little bit of uh, Peter's origin story, Peter started out as a fisherman, right? Now he also had a brother. His brother was Andrew. Andrew was actually a disciple of Jesus, an apostle, chosen to be apostle of Jesus before Peter was. And so Andrew gets chosen to be an apostle of Jesus. And before Jesus ever shows up and has this moment of calling Peter to drop his nets and to come follow him, Andrew actually goes to Peter and says, I have found the Savior, Pete. Come on, man. Let's do this. Like, he, he did these things. He told me everything. He is totally the Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament has said everything about, Peter. And, and, and maybe... As Peter heals all that, at the trustworthiness of his brother, he goes, I bet you have. But somewhere between Peter hearing all those things about Jesus, going on the testimony of his brother Andrew, that this really is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, this truly is the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament has spoke about. Somewhere between then and there, this Messiah figure shows up on the shoreline and looks Peter in the eyes after he has just led Peter to have a miraculous catch of fish and says, Peter, drop your nets and come follow me and I will lead you to be a fisher of men. Now, what Peter could have done if he existed in our churches today, that we would all think, okay, that's it, would go, yeah, Jesus, um, my brother Andrew, he was a witness to that. You are for sure Lord and Savior and, and I love you, and, I, and I'm going to, but here's what I want you to know. I'm going to be a fisher of men in my heart, and I'm going to follow you in my heart, but I really like fishing, and it's what I got to do to put bread on the table. Like, you know I got to feed my family, right, Jesus? I got you. I hear you, but I know you're Lord. Peter said it. You just did this amazing thing in my life, so I believe it. You are Lord. And a lot of our faith, is, it is right there, still holding on to what we think will make ends meet in our lives. But what displays that Peter fully understood what Jesus was asking was that he dropped those nets. And then, look, imagine this. This is a guy who knows, like, 
here's when the seasons are, here's when the time is, here's what we have to do these nets. And if you've ever, you know, gone on a deep sea or offshore fishing trip, even anybody who does any sort of com- commercial fishing, there is never a time when there's not something to do. If it's the off season, it's where we mend the nets. It's where we fix the things. It's where we, where, where we make business deals. It's where we make things happen. So there's never a time when we could just go, mm, I, don't, I don't know, we'll just let's take a break. It's the off season. No, there's always in season. So this guy who had scheduled out his whole entire life around reaping a harvest out of the sea now comes to the one who can calm it and says, all right, uh, every single day, you get to tell me what to do. There's no plans, there's no initiatives, there's no agenda. Every day I wake up, wherever you happen to have us, and I come to you and I go, uh, yeah, what what are we doing today, Jesus? (laughs) That's what following him looks like. It's dropping the nets and then surrendering and going on a daily basis, get get this, daily basis, Jesus, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? That's what a life following him looks like. And my, questions, my question is, 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 which one of those do you have more in common with? The one who said, hey, I do confess, you've done a miracle in my life, but I'm going to continue my life as it is. Or the one who says, daily I'm going to show up at the feet of Jesus and go, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? What are we doing today? That Jesus, what are we doing today, led Peter to an upside down cross. But also led him to be a man who 2,000 years ago, we still wish we could be as much of a hero in the faith as he is. And my my question is, um, what type of impact do you think Jesus would have you to have? I believe he wants you to have a Peter type of impact, an impact that is is spoken about, whether it's only in the circle of your family or in the circle of this city for years and years to come. But it comes not just by acknowledging that Jesus, yes, you are in fact Lord, but it involves and it's impossible without going, because you are Lord, I will follow you and surrender to you with my entire life. So let's keep moving through this passage. Let's go to verse 22. Verse 22 starts out with the most absolutely terrifying word, in my opinion, in all of scripture. Many. Many. It says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And again, the, the fact that he, again, Jesus is telling the story. He's, he's prophesying essentially about what will happen on that great judgment day. He's saying many in that day, they're not just gonna be like, Lord, like kinda, like I went to church a few times and I really realized it, but they're gonna be emphatically, Lord, Lord. And then from there, list out their resume. List out all the things that they did. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And, 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 and listen, in your name, drive out many demons and in your name, perform many miracles. And again, this is, this is terrifying. And it's ter- terrifying because it doesn't say, hey, there are gonna be a lot of people who get all this right. And a few people, they're just gonna be a little bit off. No, he's saying many, many, many in this, and many are going to be not just on the highway to hell, like just living sex, drugs, rock and roll, knowing it and not caring about it. But he says, there's gonna be many who are gonna stand in pulpits, change diapers in nurseries, Pass out communion, serve at the FCA, and many will be deceived. And guys, that is terrifying. And should shake, like it should go, okay, well, how do I make sure I'm not part of the many, but I'm part of the few? And so I wanna walk you through a a graphic 
that uh, I got Eric to make for me because I'm not smart enough to do it myself. Um, here, here's how to fail the test. And again, we, we walk through this. We say it's a true and false test. And Jesus is saying, okay, there's a true way and a false way. And so I want to walk you through. Uh, we, we got this graphic I want to show you. Here's how to fail final judgment. You can get an A plus in right theology. You can know it. You can know not just what, um, what maybe like our denomination believes, but you, you can know what every other one believes and how ours is right or what's different, all those other types of things. You, you can know all the big words. When I, when I say those large words like, you know, secular moral deism, you're like, I know exactly what he's talking about. You don't even need to explain that to me, Trent. I know all about Christology. You can have the right theology. You can get an A plus in that, all right? From there, you can preach boldly. And this is what's terrifying for me because I can get up and I can say, I know these things about theology. I know things about people in their lives and how those things operate. And I can preach boldly and not just preach boldly, but preach in a way where people go into the waters of baptism, where people begin to be generous with their gifts, where churches begin to explode with growth. You can do all of that and get an A plus on that. You can fight evil and injustice. You can go find whatever cause you wanna find. Give to whatever charity you wanna give to. You can end foster children in this city, put clean water in every third world country, get an A plus in that. You can perform miracles, wonders, signs. You can, you can raise people from the dead. You can make people catch a whole lot of fish. You can get to church on time. You can do all sorts of miracles. You can get your kids to behave the first time. You can load the dishwasher. You can do the miraculous, guys, the miraculous. And at the final judgment, if you have not also got an A plus in communion with God, and that's not being here and taking communion. Like, oh, I ate it once or twice. I know I had it. That's not what I'm talking about. That is a deep, rich relationship that what we do here represents and embodies this rich, deep relationship that we are, have surrendered to the Jesus who broke his body for us and allowed his blood to be poured out for us. And the power of that resurrected body that was both broken and blood poured out is now alive in us and how we meet, eat, and talk with him on a daily basis. If you fail that, it does not matter what other of those questions you got an A plus in, you will fail the final judgment. And, and what I love here is I'm, uh, I'm pretty certain that you could do the opposite of this test score and pass. That you could get an F in all right theology. I think theology is important, don't hear me wrong. But do you have to have all the answers about Christ's second coming to be a part of it? No. Do you have to know the perfect intricacies and in how to explain the Holy Trinity to be able to make it past the final judgment? No. Bold preaching. You can be that person who never finds their foot on a stage, never boldly proclaims the gospel in anything other than the way you love, serve, and care for other people behind the scenes and still find your way in. From there, fight evil and injustice. Do I think that if Jesus is really the Lord of our lives, should we be merciful to those who need mercy? For sure. But you cannot end sex trafficking and still find your way in to the kingdom of God. What about miracles? I, I, don't, I don't know of any true, like, uh, outside of the laws of nature miracles that I've performed in my life. I feel like I have I've been part of some really divine um, times where God has lined things up to happen in the ways that they should. But I believe you can end this life. 
without ever having healed somebody who was sick, without ever, ever having miraculously spoken tongues to somebody from a different nation or tribe or tongue than you. And you can still, if you get an A plus on communion with God, you will still pass. You will still hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You are now welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. And so my, my question here in regards to what you think makes you right with Jesus, which of those has the most importance to you? Which of those, even as you're looking at people in my roles or churches or the people that you would say, you now have spiritual influence over my life, as you're judging them to base off of this, this someone who I'll let have influence over my determining of what I think about God. And because at the end of the day, your best, your favorite preacher, author, whoever, at the end of the day, they're not gonna stand on the final judgment beside you to say, well, listen to what Joel said about me or listen to what Trent said about me or listen to what Max said about me. No. You'll give an account by yourself for who you said and who you showed Jesus to be in your life. And my hope is that the very last one on there, that that's the one that is most important. The way, when you come to a passage like this, like if you look at what they said, if you look at what they said, it really is the dead giveaway that they were not true followers of Christ. Because a true follower of Christ would never, in that moment with Jesus, where he says, okay, like give an account, tell me, okay, you know, again, I don't, I don't really believe this is what Jesus is gonna do, go, like stand before us on that day of judgment and go tell me why I should let you in. I just don't think that's in his ethos as our savior. But if he were to, in the defense for why I should be let in was I prophesied in your name, in your name I drove out demons, and in your name I performed many miracles. That would be a clear indicator that I do not know him as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings because anytime I was, if I was to stand before Jesus and give account for why I should be entered in and welcomed into the kingdom of God, it'd be about what I've done. I have failed. If you want to hear what a good defense sounds like, go to Matthew 5. Why, why, should, why should you let me in, Jesus? Not because of my miracles, not because of my uh, eloquent speech, not because I drove out demons and I prophesied and I told the future as it was gonna come. What would a worthy defense be? Matthew 5, 3. I was poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 4. I mourned over my sin. It was painful. I hated it. It stole from me the thing that I needed most. Matthew 5, 5. I was meek, Jesus. I didn't have the power. I surrendered it to you. What would be a good defense? Matthew 5, 6. All of the days that I spent on this earth, more than hungering for money, wealth, power, comfort, or approval, I hungered and I thirst for righteousness. What would be a good defense? Matthew 5, 7. I showed mercy, Jesus. And I had to. Because there's no other option. Once I realized how much mercy you had shown me. What would be a good defense? Matthew 5, 8. Jesus, my actions may not have always been there my heart was pure. And it was only pure because 
your heart was uh, ripped in two as the relationship between you and your father was separated temporarily because of my sin. And my heart is pure not because uh, I believe the right things or I did the right things, but my heart is pure because it's your house and there's no place that you could reside that would not be pure. What would be a good defense? Matthew 5, 9. Jesus, I, I was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. There were times in my life where I knew the only way that I would get to peace was by making war with my sin, with my flesh. And because I never sat at peace with that, you allowed me to be someone who, because I was fully made at peace with the Father, because of your sacrifice, I was able to sacrifice whatever I needed to make to be at peace with the relationships with other people that I had. What would be a good defense? Matthew 5.10. Jesus, I was persecuted. I was laughed at in the break room. I was laughed at in the locker room. My family thought I was crazy. My kids thought I was a radical. Even the people that I went to church with questioned why I would do some of the things that I would do. They didn't invite me to things. They wrote me out of wills. They spoke down on me. They overlooked me for promotions. They treated me like I didn't exist. What would be a good defense? Matthew 5, 11. I was insulted. I was persecuted. People lied about me. They said all sorts of evil things against me. But in all of that, Jesus, verse 12, I rejoiced. I was glad. During the time that I spent here on this earth, as I lived these things out, Jesus, I rejoice and I'm glad because all the while I knew that my reward would not come down here on this earth, but my reward was in heaven. And Jesus, now in this moment, I'm looking at it because I'm looking at you. See, that's, that's the defense that works. And I believe as Jesus is ending his sermon here, as he's coming to this place, I believe that's exactly what he wanted us to do, was to go back to where he started. Because he, again, he said, pay attention to his words. He says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter in what? The kingdom of heaven. Go back to Matthew 5, 3, the first words out of his mouth. The poor in spirit will enter in the kingdom. Blessed is he when he is poor in spirit, for his is the kingdom of heaven. people there sitting on the, on the hillside maybe didn't get that. But the people with the Bible should. The people who can go back and connect the dots from those words to those words should. I want to I wanna show you why this is a struggle for us. It's a struggle for us because in our lives, we see things like Bold preaching. We see things like what they talk about here. Like uh, I, I prophesied. We talked about that last week. I, I was able to say what God was going to do, and then it was going to come to pass. I was able to drive out demons. I was able to perform many miracles. The reason why this is such a tension for us is because as human beings on planet Earth, what we want is the spectacular. We love the spectacular. I want something spectacular. I want spectacular things to happen. I want to be used by God for spectacular ways. We want spectacular. 
and we want to be around spectacular. We, we want to be a part of the, the church that's doing the spectacular things. We want to work at a spectacular workplace. We crave spectacular. And because we want spectacular, we think God wants spectacular. But you know what God wants? God wants surrender. He wants somebody surrendered. He wants someone surrendered. Now, you may look at this and you go, <clears throat> okay, this is confusing. Okay, so let's walk through this. These people, um, it seems like they were surrendered though. Because why would God, why would God allow someone who is not fully surrendered to him? Why would God allow someone who is not truly having faith in his son to do these miraculous things? And shouldn't those miraculous things be the sign that they were in fact in this, this union with Jesus? It's a hard question. And I think it's one of the ones that deceives so many of us because they did do some amazing things. They prophesied, they drove out demons, and they performed many miracles. So the question is, why were they allowed to do that? My simple, and I've pounded my head, pounded through the commentaries, pounded through other people on this, and the best thing that I can come to on this, and it's as simple as it gets, why were they allowed to do these things? Because there is incredible power in the name of Jesus. That is it. There's so much power in the name of Jesus that at the name of Jesus, even those who are not in Jesus can be used by Jesus. And that blows my mind away, but actually gives me a lot of hope that man, even if I am, he can still work in spite of me. That he can still work in spite of you. That, that even the people, and I know some because I've left some, even the people who I know at this moment, because I've gotten a little bit closer to see some of the wolves in sheep clothing, see some people who are definitely what I would consider false teachers, there is still a lot of hope in my mind for the people, the masses who sit under them, because I still believe that Jesus is able to do miraculous things in spite of his most jacked up and messed up leaders. And some of you, that's, that's the reason you have faith is not because of what he said or she said or what they did, but because they did it in the power of Jesus' name and miraculous things happened. One of the greatest stories I can remember about this, this kind of Old Testament equivalent, um, if you remember that Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness. He's trying to get them through the wilderness and they're whining and complaining because that's just, man, too, I mean, however many years that was from here and there, some things never change. People will just find things to complain about. That's just the way things work, okay? So they're finding things to complain about. God has been giving them everything that they need up to this point, continue to do this. God has, uh, seriously, I mean, you saw the Red Sea part on both sides and the God who did all of that, the God who sent frogs, boils, gnats, blood rivers, everything else, you know, even really hard to get your mind around things like death angels. God did all of that and you're thirsty. And they're whining and complaining to Moses, ready to turn their back on God because they're thirsty. I just, I just picture the little kid who's really not thirsty in their bed. And maybe you had one of these kids. I have two of them. And they're dad, I'm so thirsty. And they're over-exaggerating and they're starting to tears coming out of their eyes. I just want something to drink before I go to bed. You've already, you know, sent them back. And it was, I needed to blow my nose. I need to go pee. And now for the third time, I'm thirsty. And they're whining and complaining. And I, and I think Moses, he had heard from God that he was supposed to speak to this rock and that water would come out. And see, Moses hears from God. God gives him this direction that, you know, and again, Moses has been speaking with God a whole lot up to this point. Knows God's track record. God knows God's character. And God says to Moses, Moses, speak to the rock and I'm gonna get some water to come out. I'm gonna turn that rock into a good old fashioned water fountain. First water fountain ever. We're gonna make it happen. And Moses, I believe, just frustrated with these people and maybe even frustrated with God, takes his staff that God had already turned into a snake 
and then back into a staff. This, the staff that he raised up at the Red Sea and saw it part. And he takes that staff that I don't know, just maybe had some magic in it. And he takes the staff and he just, boom, Freddie Freeman's the rock. And water starts coming out. And which seems really insignificant. But it seems super significant when you look how God responds. God goes, basically, Moses, you're going to die without getting into the promised land because you hit that rock. Which is like when you're around somebody and like their kid just doesn't say yes, sir, and they just start whooping their kid. You're like, man, that's like, wow. I wouldn't want to grow up in that house. And you can almost go, I don't want to grow up with that God. But the point that I think God is trying to make, again, I believe Moses is still in in, in heaven. He shows up on there on the mountain in the transfiguration with Jesus. I still believe like Moses made it, but he didn't make it into the promised land because he knew who God was He knew what God could do, but he wasn't fully surrendered to how God was telling him to do it. He hadn't fully said, God, yes, yep, mm -hmm, yep, sure, your way. I'm going to do this your way. And again, what still came out of the rock? Water. Moses didn't even speak to it. He just smacked it. And good things came out of it. And good things will come out of me and you too if we do things in Jesus' name. But it doesn't mean we're doing it in God's will. It doesn't mean we're doing it God's way. It just means that God's name, that the name of Jesus is incredibly powerful and works in spite of our weaknesses. And that's, that's how some of those things can still happen. And so where, where this comes to, I think for us in our lives, you remember it was a few weeks ago we talked about how it's impossible to do a life for God without first living life with God. That what Jesus came to do, and then we're getting ready to lean into this as we go into Christmas. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That, that it is impossible to do a life for God. And that's what a lot of us think. Well, I just want to do great things for God. I don't want to do things for God. I don't want to do things for God. But it's impossible to do things for God without living a life with God. And with God, I'm going to tell you, I think this is what Jesus is after here. With God, it's harder than for God. With God, with God requires doing the things that he talked about. Hey, when you pray, go into a secret place. Hey, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Hey, when you fast, don't tell anybody. Don't look all disheveled and sad. With God is harder. I think many of us, we start out asking that question, especially young people in faith. We start out saying things like this. I want to do great things for God. And we think that if we're really going to be used by God, it means I have to do great things for God. I want to do great things for God. It's a cry of many young pastors. I want to do, I can't wait to do great things for God. I came here as your pastor. I want to do great things for God. In and through McDonough Christian Church. I want to do great things for God. You know what I'm coming to figure out? It's not about doing great things for God. It's about doing things with my great God. See, there's a big difference between those two things. By saying, I want to do great things for God. And saying, I just want to do things. I don't care if they're great or not. I just want to do things with my great God. See, the greatness is not influence and the greatness is not predisposed and the greatness is not all about the things that I do. The greatness is about who he is and what I could do, whether they're big, small, or insignificant in the eyes of everybody who's looking on, as long as there are things that I know that I'm doing with my great God, it does not matter. And that's the call that he puts on our life. And in my life, some of the ways that I've known, I've been teeter-totting on idolatry, is I am more excited about what God is doing through me than what God is doing in me. That's how you know you're idolatrous. You get jazzed and you get fired up about what God's doing through you. And the things that he's really doing in you, just kind of out there. You're not necessarily as concerned with those as you need to be. 
so he comes to this passage. He comes to the end, 723. He says, I will tell them plainly. It's a hard word here. I never knew you. I never knew you. And he gets worse from there. He didn't say, I, didn't, I never knew you, the end. He calls him a name. He says, I, uh, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoer. And that, that word evildoer is like lawbreakers. And the reason he called them lawbreakers is it's, it's kind of like evildoers, lawbreakers. And I, I would even simplify it even more down to say, you're a liar. And the, the law that you broke was you were saying I was Lord, but you were really a liar. I was never your Lord. You didn't really want me. You just wanted what I could do for you. You said, Lord, Lord, so that you could take the power that I have, that's power that's available in my name, and do the things that you want to do. That first step of faith, after I, I believe that you are who you say you are, the next step, the first step is going, now I am fully surrendered. I'm off the throne of my life, Jesus. That is now where you are. And you never got there. You said, Lord, Lord. And you said, because I said, Lord, Lord, now I've got your name, now I can go do in your name whatever I want. And that's why he calls them evildoers. That's why he says, I never knew you. And this is where I would say very plainly, and this is hard, that being used by God doesn't equal belonging to God. And that's, that's terrifying for those of us in ministry. That's terrifying for those who lead groups. That's terrifying for us who may have believed that we were excelling in our spiritual maturity and that Jesus was proud of us and we were getting gold stars and gold crowns in heaven. But Jesus makes it very clear right here. Being used by God doesn't equal be belonging to him. That's where we have to really ask ourselves our question. What is it? What is the true evidence in my life that I really do belong to God? Because the last question that I leave you today with is the question that Jesus starts it with. The question is not, do you know Jesus, friend? The question is, does Jesus know you? The question is not, do you know Jesus? That's how we start those evangelistic conversations with people. Hey, do you know Jesus? Is he your Lord and Savior? Not the question. The question is not, do you know him? The question is, does he know you? And I would ask you that question today. Like, what would, like, what would you say would be proof that he does know you? And my friend, if, if the things that you would highlight do not sound like Matthew 5, 3 through 9, I would throw a big red flag up in your faith. The things that we should give to evidence that I know Jesus does know me is that our lives would be marked by the blessed are, the beatitudes. 